When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of the Thinking Basketball Podcast is brought to you by Barry's Granny Free Throws. If you're a basketball player at any level and struggling from the line, you must try out Barry's Granny Free Throw Kit. I was always a pretty good free throw shooter when I played, maybe around 80%. But with Granny Style, I can stroke 20, 30 in a row, no problem now. I can even hit them when I'm tired. Uh, The kit comes with a special ball that has hand guides on it for where to place your fingers, a book for exercises for that perfect free throw squatting depth, not too high, not too low, and a technique to strengthen the wrist rotation that's required for that soft, feathery, underhanded free throw touch. It even has an app that allows you to track your progress. You may think underhanded free throws aren't cool, but you know what's really not cool? Missing your free throws. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Happy New Year. It's 2019. First episode of 2019. And I guess fitting for me to point out the calendar because today I want to talk about a trend that is taking place possibly in 2019. Maybe it's a larger shift we're seeing. And that is around the value of individual defenders. Individual defenders, from my perspective, have always been undervalued. It's something I talked a lot about in my all-time player series. And in fact, in the post-mortem of that series, in stuck in there somewhere when talking about the value of defense is some data and some studies that I've run on individual defenders, big man defenders, how valuable are defenders relative to offensive players and things of that nature. We'll get to that in a second. But this idea has been swirling around, I think, in the basketball intelligentsia for a while, where back in the day when the paint was more clogged, even even when the three-point shot existed 20, 30 years ago, you could still have these giant rim protectors who were incredibly valuable defenders. And for for two simple causal reasons. One, the offenses are constantly funneled toward the paint, and the big man is sitting in the paint, and therefore he has a larger responsibility. He influences a disproportionately large number of field goal attempts. And two, because he's in the paint, he finishes possessions as well. He grabs a bunch of rebounds, uh, and he uses his size and his height to clean the glass and end the possession. Okay, all well and dandy, and I think historically our all-time best defenders, whether it's Bill Russell way back in the day or in the three-point era, even in the 80s, he had guys like Mark Eaton, Hakeem Olajuwon, certainly Dikembe Mutombo after those guys. When you look at that archetype traditionally, it's a big man who can block shots, possibly move, clean the glass, and they have an enormous value. They can anchor a defense and turn a defense from poor to solid or solid to great almost just by themselves with their mere presence. That's the idea. Perimeter players can be great defensively, but they're never going to have that share of responsibility that a big man has. 
at least traditionally. And so a few weeks back, the legendary analytics pioneer Dean Oliver, Dean Olytics on Twitter, uh, he shot out a tweet looking at some of his data and saying, wait a second, there's a shift that I'm seeing. So this is even independent of maybe a trend in the last 10 or 15 years away from that classical big man archetype. The, the b- classical big man archetype in the league today is Rudy Gobert. The more modern version of that, as the game has been stretched and spaced and horizontal elements are magnified, meaning you have to be able to tag and recover. You have to be able to shift into different positions. You can't camp in the paint because there's defensive three seconds. And if you have a stretch big that you're guarding, he's going to pull you outside the paint. So there's some changes that have occurred. And with that, your archetype looks more like Draymond Green is the guy now. Kevin Garnett was the guy 10 years ago. And the question has always sort of been standing there. Are you able to have as much impact in a stretched out game like that as an individual defender? I, I tend to say not quite as much, but you're still pretty good. And so now uh, the, the tweet that uh, Dean shot out, basically, let me, let me read it. He said, the NBA three-point revolution is changing defense. This year shows stark decline in defensive performance by bigs with simultaneous improvement by guards. And these aren't huge numbers, but he looks at the average uh, value in his metric, defensive net points, and he looks at the average value for guards, perimeter guys, and for big men. And basically what he's looking at, again, it, it may just be a blip because we're only looking at a couple years and we're looking at averages, but it appears that what's happening now is the average wing player is getting a little more valuable as the average big man gets a little less valuable. So the question becomes, what's going on here? A, is it possible to have the same high-end defense that the best perimeter, uh, excuse me, the best overall defenders had 20 years ago or 10 years ago? And B, as a big man, is your high-end value going down because of the nature of the game? But Both the space in the half court stretches you out. You can't camp in the paint. Uh, more dynamic movement and stuff is going to basically mean you're involved in fewer possessions. And then the, the pace as well. Pushing the pace, getting down court, in theory you might not be able to be as part of as many possessions if you have that classical archetype. Uh, I I add that caveat at the end because, of course, if you're a stretch big or you can float out on the perimeter a lot, like Al Horford comes to mind, then your scheme allows you to get back in transition, and your transition defense may be of the utmost importance because you're the the stopper in the lane in odd man rushes. Okay, so that's what I really wanted to dig into here. Uh, There's two questions. One, top-end defense, is it less valuable than it used to be for any individual across the board? And two, related to uh, the tweet that I just read, do we now have a situation where big men can't exert the same level of value, so they come back to the pack, or certain smalls maybe are more valuable, or things of that nature? And to answer this, I wanted to look at RPM, that's ESPN's RPM, 
defensive RPM over the last six years since the metric has been available. And Jacob Goldstein's PIPM, that's the Nylon Calculus Wiz Kid. He's got a great metric, and it's got a nice defensive component to it where he tries to luck adjust defensive numbers. That means take into account uh, three-point shooting and free-throw shooting that seems to be out of whack when a player is on or off the court. Regresses that back to some normality. Okay, so with those metrics in mind, first, first before we look at what the data says, in those two metrics. We'll get to that in just a second. But before we look at what the data says, I wanted to hearken back to some of that research that I had uh, sort of buried in the postmortem of my all-time player series. And that was looking at long-term, or I shouldn't say long-term, it was looking at multi-year adjusted plus-minus sets that I have in my database, which span back to 1997 at the earliest. That's when We have play-by-play in basketball, a little over 20 years. And looking at that adjusted plus-minus set, there there were two pretty interesting takeaways that we want to carry into this conversation. It's, It's the background that we need to help answer this question. The first is basically the difference between your top offensive value guys and your top defensive value guys. There were a bunch of players, top seven, eight players, who had two-year stretches where their offensive plus-minus was around plus six per game. So plus six is your number on offense. That's your Steve Nash's and your LeBron James and all those great guys. Then you look at the top and defensive players over the same period, two-year stretches. You have a couple guys flirting with five, like Dikembe Mutombo and Ben Wallace. And then a bunch near plus four, and you're getting under plus four uh, fairly quickly. I think your seventh or eighth guy is already like 3.7. So that's two-year averages, plus six for offense, plus four, four and a half, something like that, maybe the equivalent for defense. And also the takeaway there may be a little bit harder or or rarer to have that level of high-end impact on defense you're you're going to have a group of guys that are going to gravitate more quickly toward plus two and a half plus three as top end defenders then your top offensive guys are still going to be while your top offensive guys are still going to be plus four and a half or something like that the other nugget that was in there i'm realizing might not be quite as relevant to our conversation here today but it had to do with the idea that there was more variability among high-end offensive players, whereas high-end defensive players maybe, or at least they showed a pattern of being a little bit more consistent. I think this has to do with scaling or scalability or portability. D- defense tends to travel well when you're really good, but we'll, we'll table that for another day. All right, I digress. What does PIPM say about, well, let's start with RPM, because RPM only goes back six years. What does RPM say is happening in the last six years among these top high-end defenders and then amongst bigs versus wings or smalls? If we look at, say, the average value of the top 10 defenders, in 2014 and 15, it was plus 4.5. In 2016 and 17, it was plus 4. 
In 2018, it was plus 3.7, and this year so far, it's plus 3.4. So perhaps an indication as we've moved into this new style of play, more three-pointers, more Mori ball, more pace, more space, spread everything out, that your top guys maybe, maybe can't have the same impact. What if we look at, say, the top three? Top 10, you may be able to wash out outliers. Top three, uh, you're really looking at the guys who are allowed to be outliers. They're allowed to stick out. They're not drowned out by the average. Well, again there, you see something similar in RPM. RPM says, well, from about 2014 to 2017, your top three guys were around plus five. Last year in 2018, the average of the top three defenders in RPM was plus four and a half. And this year it's plus 3.7. So at the top, now again, the top could just be, we don't have the great outliers. You know, when Jordan retires, when LeBron retires, you don't think there's a trend just because somebody doesn't average 35 points a game or dominate the statistics or something. So... You know, I'm trying to balance both the totality of the top-end defenders and be sensitive to the fact that there may be some outliers who just aren't playing as well. It could be Gobert, uh, Draymond Green seems to have lost a step, stuff like that. But there does seem to be some overall trend in the larger group based on this metric. Now, is something changing among bigs? Are, are, are bigs following the Dean Oliver pattern of coming back to the pack on average while smalls are starting to creep up the leaderboard. Well, you look at the RPM leaders this year and none of them are smalls, not a one. The The first non-traditional big on the list is Paul George and he's ninth and Robert Covington is another non-traditional big and he's 11th. Now, why am I saying non-traditional big Paul George and Robert Covington are wing players. Well, they're 6'9". And not only are they switchable, but they can play the four in long stretches. And that's kind of something to point out or differentiate because it didn't necessarily exist as an archetype or wasn't particularly common 10 or 20 years ago. So the point there is you still have giant people at the top of this list. Draymond Green, in fact, is the shortest guy. And, of course, he plays power forward and center. Now, putting all your stock in defensive RPM, especially 40 games into the season, I think comes with some cautions. Uh, The first legitimate smalls this year are at 14 and 15, Danny Green and the incomparable Marcus Smart. But last year you did have, you know, this is this is the pattern with plus-minus based data. Last year you did have DeJounte Murray and Victor Oladipo cracking into the top 10 as smalls. Now before we look at PIPM, speaking of adjusted plus-minus, I just want to point out that if you look at adjusted plus-minus for the last 20 years, you don't really see a trend, at least leading into last season. We don't have any decent data from this season. I like multi-year plus minus studies, I think single year still has a way too much noise involved in it. Uh, even, even with the regularization, the improved regression techniques, but you don't really see a significant trend 
if we look at PIPM over time, which also goes back to PIPM goes back a while, but it has plus minus data available back to 1997. And if we look at the trend in PIPM, well, perhaps this year there is a downturn. This year, the the average value of the top 10 defenders in PIPM this year is plus 2.8. And that is the lowest it has been since 1998. So that to me looks like a blip, not a significant trend. The leader in PIPM is plus 3.2. That is the lowest it's been since 1998, plus 3.3. And you have the same patterns, top three and top five Pretty much since 1998, if you if you were to expunge that from the record, what you get is you get a lot of fours and a lot of high threes. And this year, when you get to 2019, average value of your top five guys right around plus three. Average value of your top three guys still right around plus three. There's a there's a group lumped up there. So does that suggest that your top end, your absolute best ceiling for elite defenders is a little bit lower than what it used to be. It might. It might. We're dealing with very small samples here. We're dealing with one year. It's hard to say, but there is there is at least in the data the hint, the suggestion that that could be the case, that we could be trending to a place where top-end defensive value is even lower than what it used to be relative to offensive value. And that to be an elite defensive anchor like the Rudy Gobert's of the world might not be quite as valuable. I'm not ready to sign that check. I'm not ready to say that. I think we're in the early stages of some stuff that when we get some distance in the rear view, we'll be able to look back and have a much clearer understanding. But right now, I'm not ready to cash that check. But it is worth pointing out for those who are onto this that the data is suggesting we could be headed in that direction. Top top 11 defenders in PIPM as of me recording this, Rudy Gobert is plus 3-2, Nerlens Noel is plus 3-2, Giannis plus 3-1, and Draymond Green plus 3. Those are the only guys over 3. Again, Robert Covington and Paul George are the only sort of non-traditional bigs in the top 15 and no wings in the top 15. So I still think that most of our traditional tenets are holding true. The question from a larger scale or maybe even from a historical scale starts to become over this period going forward, do you devalue high-end defenders even a little bit more? Do you devalue the defensive presence of a big man even a little bit more? Not sure. Time will tell. The first legitimate small this year in PIPM is Russell Westbrook at 17. And just as a comparison, I randomly grabbed 2008, where you had Kevin Garnett uh, topping the leaderboard at like plus 4.3 or something, uh, one more guy around plus 4. And then that year, the top small was Rajon Rondo at number 13. So there you have it. Now we'll just sit around for a few years and see whether this is a thing or not. (laughs) Uh, Not as fun as the hot takes, but 
That is sometimes how it works. To to be continued. Um, speaking of to be continued, I often get a lot of questions on the Twitter that sometimes are too long to type out the response. And so what I'm going to try to do is answer questions on Twitter that are a little too long for that format on the podcast. You guys have been sending them for a while. I'm sometimes negligent in responding to them. So keep sending them there. And even if I don't get to it in the next episode, if it's a question that necessitates a little more than 280 characters, we'll dial it up here on the podcast and discuss it. Okay, so looking at the Twitter mailbag for today. This question comes in from NBA Academic. At least I call him NBA Academic. His handle is NBA and then the rest of the word academic. So it's NB Academic. I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, Cody, do you consider Harden's current offensive season to be portable? Just as a reminder, portability is this concept of how well your skills travel up. That is to say, can you provide the same value that you're currently providing as you scale up in teammate quality? So if you're taking a 40-win team to 50 wins, can you do stuff that also takes a 50-win team to 60 wins? Another way to think about this, and it's going to segue right into how I feel about what's going on with James Harden right now is can you provide the same value that you're currently providing in this situation while bringing on others who still provide their value? Is there a redundancy? Is there a, are there diminishing returns that clash? And so if you think about what Harden is doing right now, the answer is no. I don't consider this current offensive season to be particularly portable. Now, there's a lot to unpack, which which I want to do. I've said this before. I don't love how we celebrate scoring binges that carry teams, but we rarely celebrate guys who have an all-around game that raises the ceiling of a great team. Because... To raise the ceiling of a great team almost never involves scoring 45 points every night or taking 40 shots or having the whole system run through you or whatever it is, right? And so what you end up doing is you end up making defensive plays, you end up passing, you end up creating shots. So you don't take 30 shots, you take 21 instead. And you do get beautiful box scores depending on what you value in the box score. You you might get... 32 points and eight assists and six, whatever it is. I I think I just started subconsciously whispering sweet nothings with the box score. 31 points. It's not long walks on the beach that does it for you. That's when you know you watch too much basketball. You got your dating profile. What do you like? Incredible box scores. (laughs) All right, where where were we? Let's get back on track. Box scores are great, but there's also an element of the scoring binge that'll just blow your mind like Harden is averaging 40 points per game this month Uh, Kobe did this in 2006 Jordan had a stretch in 1987 
that was just bonkers with 40 and 50 point games. And there's a tendency to look at that and just think, oh, that guy's doing things that no one else can do. And therefore, that is the best and most valuable thing in basketball. And well, I think philosophically, you can marvel at it. You can say, that's incredible skill. That's amazing scoring. Scoring like that doesn't automatically translate to great offense. And in fact, what Harden is doing right now is in line with basically all the other great non-LeBron James carry jobs. Basically, everybody else who's had a team with fairly limited offensive parts, which we'll call this Houston team fairly limited, quote-unquote fairly limited, with Chris Paul out, and has had talent around them like that, they've lifted teams to similar places as to what Harden is doing right now. So there's a variety of guys historically that come to mind from Kobe in 06 to Michael Jordan to Kareem in the 70s, guys like that. There's there's a history of many players doing stuff like this and celebrating this even though the team isn't taken to championship heights. Just to be clear, in case it hasn't been publicized or anything, Houston is not playing at championship heights. Houston, with Harden in the last month, is 12-3, and three, which is great, but their differential in those games is plus 5.7 per 100. And with Harden on the court, they're plus 5.2 per 100 possessions, which is, let's put it this way, being plus 5 with your best player on the court is indicative of a 45 to 48 win team something in that range depending on the lopsidedness of your lineup and your bench and that's good if you have a guy and the entire thing orbits around you like russell westbrook two years ago should have mentioned him earlier same kind of thing that style is not going to win 60 games unless you're lebron james throw him out he doesn't count here just talking about the offensive vortex of a guy putting up these kinds of numbers. It's incredibly impressive, but I do think it gets overstated. I think we overvalue the wrong thing there. Okay, so why aren't these kinds of performances portable? It's not that they're not valuable. It's not that the guy isn't playing super well. It's that if you need to win a championship, whether you move hard in somewhere else or bring in new pieces around him, is he going to be able to play the same way and have the same kind of numbers in those situations and make the team that much better. No, he's not. That's the issue. Last year is a decent example of this, where you had an incredibly high-end team with a guy playing this kind of style, and in fact Harden lowered his offensive load, his offensive responsibilities, from 2017. And now this year, in the last month, without Paul, it's spiked. His load is at absolutely bonkers all-time level. His offensive load right now is 71. What that means, offensive load is an estimate of the percentage of plays you're directly involved in on the court. So that means 71% of Houston offensive possessions are directly influenced by a James Harden shot, shot creation, a pass to a shot, anything like that. That's crazy. That's an all-time level. And it's actually hard to get 
much higher because of fouls, loose ball fouls, fast breaks, things where you never touch the ball, stuff like that. If you're not familiar with the stat, superstars are usually around 45 to 50, something like that. And mega guys who suck up all the air in the room, they can push 55 to 60. Very few guys ever over 60, Harden himself included, Westbrook up around 70. But this is crazy. Here's what, here's what jumps out to me about Harden right now. He's taking 18 and a half three-point attempts per 100. The whole team back in the day didn't take that many three-point attempts per 100. I don't mean in 1980. I mean 10 or 15 years ago. 19 attempts per 100 for a player, a single player. This would smash the all-time record. Steph Curry holds that record. From 2016, he took 15.9 three-point attempts per 100. Harden is up just under 19. But there's some other interesting stuff to consider. With James Harden, the Rockets are shooting very well as a team outside of Harden, just under 38%. For instance, Gerald Green shooting 45% on volume. Austin Rivers is stroking it as well. Now take Harden off the court. They've played 141 minutes without him in the last month. Their offensive rating with him on the court is 118. It's fantastic. Their offensive rating without him on the court drops all the way down to 117. They're playing very well without him. This is not to suggest that they're not very va- that he's not very valuable. That's not the point here. It's a very small sample and that that bench unit plays other bench units. The point is they're doing what they need to do to play well and to support this system around Harden. So with Harden, they're shooting well, they're rebounding. Without Harden, they're defending, they're shooting well, they're rebounding, they're still hitting shots, they're doing what they need to do. The plus-minus is actually better in the last 15 games, talking about the last 15 games here. They're plus 7.6 in 141 minutes without James Harden. So if you go full circle someone's still going to have to come in and hit those shots. You're going to have to replace Gerald Green's 45% three-point shooting. So no, it's not portable because Harden isolation plus awesome spot-up shooting isn't going to be replaced by a guy who also needs the ball or has other stuff run for him, mid-posts, pin-downs, whatever it is. Clint Capella, when Harden is off the court, is grabbing 26 rebounds per 100 possessions. Sorry, just under 27 rebounds per 100 possessions. To put that into perspective, the all-time highest number is held by Dennis Rodman, and it is just under 27 rebounds per 100 possessions. So he's inhaling misses with Harden off the court. So they're doing what they need to do. And without him, they're playing very well. They are actually better per 100 overall. Without him in those short minutes, they're plus seven. So the short of it is that he needs the ball. He needs the basketball 99% of the time to impart the value on the game that he's having right now. And that filling those role spots around him, much as is the case with old LeBron James teams in Cleveland, you're going to reduce 
players who have complementary talents to role players. And so the flip side is that when Harden plays with those players, he dials back what he's doing now on the ball, and he needs to be able to have value in other situations. But man, he is red hot right now and just a handful. Again, I come let me let me just before I leave pontificate back to that three-point figure. The thing that's really interesting to me about the way he's playing is he's just shooting Okay, so in 2003, Kobe Bryant extended his pull-up jumper past the three-point line. I thought that was a pretty key breakthrough for him as a player because it meant he could take three-point jumpers even with the defense in his face. And he did that, and he did that with some degree of accuracy given how difficult those shots were. And I see a very similar thing happening with Harden right now. It's all the discussion in the analytics community you're seeing around Harden's three-point pull-up frequency. And so it'll be interesting to see if this continues in the playoffs where his shot profile is a bunch of free throws because he blows by his man to get to the rim, or, I don't know, 12 to 15 three-pointers a game because that's just suddenly become his standard pull-up jumper. And his standard pull-up jumper is now worth three points instead of two. And that math is going to carry him to places where similar guys in the past have been closer to league average and efficiency. And he's still humming along six, seven points better than league efficiency. We will see. All right. On that note, as always, I want to thank my patrons. They've been awesome lately. I have a bunch of new ones. Uh, if you sign up on patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball, you help me make more podcasts and especially YouTube videos. That's where I'm spending more of my time now. Latest video was on Lonzo Ball, a full breakdown of his game. You can check that out on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel. Otherwise, I hope you guys are having a great day and I will talk to you in the next episode.